Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, Judges chapter two, continued. In Judges chapter two, we discovered the beginning of this terribly unexpected quick slide of Israel from their golden age of unity and harmony with Yehovah under Joshua's leadership into rebellion and idolatry. And we saw last week that the Lord accused Israel of gross disobedience and that in the light of all he had done for them, it was all the worse. Now, I want to keep want you to keep something in mind as we continue our study of Judges chapter 2 today and keep on reminding yourself of it all during our exploration of this book. Israel was an already redeemed people. The folks that were behaving in such wicked ways that God had no choice but to react weren't pagans, but fully redeemed Israelites. These were not people who pretended to be redeemed, but actually weren't. They weren't people who were redeemed at one time, but aren't considered redeemed any longer. But their salvation history was in grave danger of being reversed. What the Lord was about to do with Israel was not an act of his disavowing them. Rather, it was an act of Israel stepping away from him. The things he would do to Israel reflect a continuing love and concern for his set-apart people in hopes that these harsh punishments and severe divine disciplines would drive them back to safety and rest in him. Well, other than for purely historical reasons, why must we take what is happening here so personally? It's because this has a direct connection to the church age. Let me say that again. This has a direct connection to the church age. This God principle of the Lord attempting to keep his people firmly in the kingdom, even when our behavior warrants expulsion, is ongoing. Within this principle is also how the Lord reacts to our continued sinning sinning, and tries to draw us back from the brink, usually by means of punishments and disciplinary actions. However, if our determination is such that even God's severity is not sufficient enough pain to convince us of our foolishness and we essentially or emphatically renounce him, then he will open his hand and release us back to our former unredeemed state. Now, we also see that the evil inclination that all men are born with remains active, even after redemption. It's our delusions that entrap us. It was Israel's delusions born of their evil inclinations that caused them to honestly believe that they could worship Baal and Asherah and at the same time insist 
that they were devoted to Yehovah. You know, we look at this as distant observers and think, what a bunch of dummies. I mean, how could anyone participate in a festival, a pagan festival to a pagan god, one moment and then turn right around and claim piousness and holiness and the name of the God of Israel? How could those ungrateful, stiff-necked Hebrews take elements of Baal worship and then incorporate them into the pure ways set down at Mount Sinai and then think God would find it all acceptable? Well, church, we do it all the time. How many Christian institutions host Halloween parties in the name of providing a safe and godly place for their children to do what they ought not be doing in the first place. How intertwined are the two most important Gentile Christian created holy days of Easter and Christmas with pagan symbols, drunken parties, excessive self-gratification, and downright secularism. But we have ready and well rehearsed Excuses and rationalizations that we honestly believe exempt us from responsibility or consequences. We are reliving the era of the judges, only this time with a Christian theme. And I pray for the day that all of us will finally hear the Lord saying to us, The words he said to Israel in the second chapter of Judges, verse 2. You have paid no attention to what I said. What is this you have done? Let's read a little more of Judges chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Since we're going to start at verse 10, if you have the complete Jewish Bible, it will be page 272. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 10. When that entire generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation arose that knew neither Adonai nor the work he had done for Israel. Then the people of Israel did what was evil from Adonai's perspective and served the Baals. They abandoned Adonai, the god of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods selected from among the gods of the peoples around them and worshipped them. And this made Adonai angry. They abandoned Adonai. They served Baal and the Ashtoreth. The anger of Adonai blazed against Israel and he handed them over to pillagers who plundered them and to their enemies around them so that they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever they launched an attack, the power of Adonai was against them so that things turned out badly just as Adonai had said would happen and had sworn to them. They were in dire distress. But then Adonai raised up judges who rescued them from the power of those who were plundering them. Yet they did not pay attention to their judges, but made whores of themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned away from the path on which their ancestors had walked, the way of obeying Adonai's mitzvot, his commands. They failed to do this. When Adonai raised up judges for them, Adonai was with the judge and delivered them from the hands of their enemies throughout the lifetime of that judge. For Adonai was moved to pity by their groaning under those oppressing and crushing them. 
But after the judge died, they would relapse into worse behavior than that of their ancestors. Following other gods to serve and worship them, they abandoned none of their practices or stubborn ways. So the anger of Adonai blazed against Israel and he said, Because this nation violates my covenant, which I ordered their fathers to obey, and they don't pay attention to what I say, in the future I will not expel ahead of them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. This is how I will test Israel, to see whether or not they will keep the way of Adonai, living according to it as their ancestors did. So Adonai allowed those nations to remain where they were without quickly driving them out. He did not hand them over to Joshua. Well, here we're introduced to what will become an endless cycle of delusional apostasy by Israel, oppression from an enemy as punishment, realization of their sin and then subsequent repentance and then eventual deliverance. Now, I said delusional apostasy because I think the meaning of apostasy from a biblical perspective is different than the common dictionary meaning. Webster says that apostasy means to abandon one's faith. I don't completely agree with that. And the reason I don't is because in the modern sense, for us, the word abandon means to denounce or completely and knowingly give something up in its entirety. If we abandon a sinking ship, we're giving up the ship as entirely a lost cause in exchange for something else. If an unwed mother drops off her infant at the door of a church or an orphanage, she is abandoning it and will generally have no further relationship or contact with that child. See, that's not what we see Israel doing in Judges. And that's usually not what we see happening in the New Testament when a believer is accused of apostatizing. I think it's better that we see it from God's perspective. Because it's the only perspective that matters. For him, to abandon more means to break faith. It usually means that we have chosen not to entirely fall away or to denounce him, but rather to mix our devotion to him with devotion to something else. Or it has a sense of intellectually hanging on to him on the one hand while behaviorally following the path of evil on the other. See, the Lord created marriage to give us a visible, tangible, physical way of practicing and acting out the kind of relationship with all of its benefits and obligations and challenges that he has with his followers. He sees Israel and all of his believers in the context of a wife to him. And he wants us to see him in the context of a husband to us. Thus, when a spouse spouse is unfaithful in a marriage, it is said, even in our secular civil courts, that the marriage has been legally abandoned. Even if the couple hasn't separated, even if the unfaithful spouse 
actually didn't have in his or her mind to legally terminate the marriage and marry somebody else, the level of unfaithfulness crossed over some point that the spiritual bond was broken, even if it was only the human spiritual bond. Now, one of the most graphic depictions of this concept of a marriage relationship between Yehovah and his followers is contained in the book of Hosea. And we're not going to read it all, but I do want for us to read the short first chapter as it helps us to understand the Lord's attitude towards those who break faith, abandon him. So, open up your Bibles to Hosea, or Hosea, chapter 1, which if you have the complete Jewish Bible is page 707. Hosea chapter 1. Hosea. This is the word of Adonai that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Yezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Now, Adonai's opening words in speaking to Hosea were to instruct Hosea. And he said, Go, marry a whore. Have children with this whore. For the land is engaged in flagrant whoring. Whoring away from Adonai. So he went and married Gomer, the daughter of Devlaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And Adonai said to him, Call him Yisrael, because in only a short time I will punish the house of Yehu for having shed blood at Yisrael. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. When that day comes, I will break the bow of Israel in the Yisrael valley. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And Adonai said to him, Name her Lo-Ruchamah, for I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel. By no means will I forgive them, but I will pity the house of Judah. I will save them not by bow, sword, battle, horses, or cavalry, but by Adonai their God. And after weaning Lo-Ruchamah, she conceived and bore a son. And Adonai said, Name him Lo-Ami, because you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Whoring is a word often used in the Bible for a spouse breaking faith in a marriage relationship. It is virtually a synonym for idolatry when it pertains to man's broken relationship to God. Now, when this faith-breaking reaches some tipping point that only the Lord determines, then he springs into action with the result expressed in the names of Hosea's three children. Yisrael, meaning God sows catastrophe. Lo Ruchamah, meaning God will no longer have pity. And Lo Ami, which means his followers are going to become not my people. And thus he will be not their God. Now while those words 
are frightening beyond imagination, there is some good news that is contained in the very first verse of Hosea chapter 2. And it says, Nevertheless, the people of Israel will number as many as the grains of sand by the sea, which cannot be measured or counted, so that the time will come when, instead of being told, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the children of the living God. That is, after the Lord has disowned Israel for a time, he will open the door who, to let those back in who want to come back in. They originally came to the Lord in their own free will. Then they took up the path of evil and thus fell away by their own free will. Then the Lord will open up a path to recovering their redemption, which they must enter by their own free will. It's like that for believers in Yeshua. So with the concept of a marriage relationship in mind and with a better understanding of what the Bible means by abandonment Judges verse 12 can say they, Israel, abandoned Jehovah, the God of their fathers but it does not mean that it was their intention to no longer worship God if you asked an Israelite at that time, have you left your relationship with Jehovah and replaced it with devotion to another God, the answer would have been an emphatic no. Rather, it is as is written in the previous verse. The people of Israel did what was evil in Jehovah's eyes or Jehovah's perspective. The specific evil was idolatry. It will always be for mankind that our viewpoint, whether Christian or not, is irrelevant when contrasted with God's. It doesn't matter if we consider ourselves moral people or a good person or saved and secured for eternity. God's definition of all things is what we must go by or we're simply deluding ourselves. It's much easier and more comfortable for us to ignore the commandments of Torah where God defines sin, defines holiness, righteousness, and purity, and instead believe that with our salvation we'll somehow simply know. Without scriptural investigation into the Torah, we'll then rely on the so-called goodness of our own hearts. Or we'll more often rely on religious doctrines and traditions to determine our beliefs and explain what is proper versus improper behavior. But when we walk down that dangerous but wide road, we'll also find ourselves in the exact same position as this new generation of Israelites who, as it says in verse 10, knew neither Yehovah or the work he had done for Israel. As I explained in our last lesson, this statement doesn't mean that they didn't know who Yehovah was or that they weren't aware of their own national history. Instead, they just chose to be willfully ignorant. 
Therefore, they blindly went about their lives confident that they were in good stead with the Almighty, when in his eyes they were rebellious and unfaithful, and that equated to abandonment. The wife in the marriage, Israel, had committed adultery against her husband, who in this case is Jehovah. Verses 12 and 13 say that Israel chose to add other gods, Canaanite gods, to the mix due to their syncretism with their pagan neighbors. It was in their eyes a peaceful, loving, appropriate thing to do. But God was unimpressed with their peaceful ambitions and their sincere intents. And so it says that the Lord's anger blazed up against Israel with the result that he allowed Israel to have their own way and to mix with the wicked Canaanites. And he made it so that the Canaanites no longer feared them. But the Israelites lost all desire to resist their enemies. Now I want to show you something fascinating about verse 14 that demonstrates the amazing interconnectedness of the word of God and why we must skip over nothing. Look at verse 14. Literally the first words of verse 14 say, the off of the Lord burned against Israel or the nostrils of the Lord burned against Israel. Now follow me here. What the Lord is incensed about is Israel's idolatry. They were bowing down to the Baals. And what that means by definition is they were presenting burnt offerings to the Baals. Yet they were also presenting the same offerings to God. Naturally, these tainted offerings were unacceptable to God. They were defiled. They were anything but holy. Now recall that on several occasions in our study of the first five books of the Bible that it would be said that the smoke of Israel's offerings from the altar of burnt offerings would waft up to God and he would find them what? A pleasing odor to his nostrils. They were pleasing because they were offered in obedience. They were offered properly from a proper altar at a proper sanctuary by the proper mediaries, the priests. In Judges 2.14, we find the opposite. When the Lord smelled the smoke of their burnt offerings, it caused his nostrils to burn. The odor of Israel's offerings were not pleasing to him because they were offered according to pagan standards from pagan altars, at pagan sanctuaries, and many times by whatever official they wish, wish to use or no official at all. See, God's people cannot substitute unclean offerings for clean offerings and then give them to the Lord. God's people cannot declare good what God declares is evil. God's people must never think that we can, without consequence, wander after things that we're told to reject. Because the result at some point can be that God will no longer block our path that was for our own good. At some point, He'll let us go 
the way that we determined we're going to go. He will open his hand and we will be allowed to be as the word, as the world rather, and to share their eternal fate. You think that's only an Old Testament curse? Listen to Romans 1.26. This is why God has given them up to degrading passions so that their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural and likewise the men giving up natural relations with the opposite sex burn with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with other men and receiving in their own persons the penalty appropriate to that perversion. Why is homosexuality on the rise in our society? Why is so-called gay marriage now legal in some states? Because it's being sought after as an appropriate way of life by many. Validated as good and healthy. And even a segment of the church now celebrates it right along with with the unbelievers. And because God has obviously decided to turn those over to that perversion who insist they must have it. Just as Israel convinced themselves that God preferred peace with their Canaanite neighbors to war, so many modern Christians have convinced themselves that God prefers tolerance and inclusiveness to obedience and standing up for what is right. The commandments of God are crystal clear on the matter. But men have decided that any kind of love is a good and godly love. Is there a consequence for doing this terrible thing? According to Paul, there is. Now, from the spiritual and heavenly point of view, there were five reasons recorded in Judges for Israel's fall from grace. First was that the tribes no longer fought for a common cause. And they were in a state of disunity. They even began to war amongst themselves. This led to the wilderness tabernacle becoming dilapidated. Eventually being moved from Shiloh for political reasons. Even the ark became disassociated from the tabernacle in such a way that it would soon be seen as no longer necessary that the ark be kept in the Holy of Holies. This led to a breakdown in the entire priestly system and thus the indispensable sacrificial system. God could no longer uh, be properly appeased and the people's sins could no longer be properly atoned for. Second, the twelve tribes decided that rather than following God's instructions to deport all Canaanites from the promised land and to annihilate those who refused to go, they would establish good relations with them. Such a thing nearly overnight exposed Israel to customs and cultures that held just too much temptation for them to resist. Third, The gods of the Canaanites were nature gods. As Israel had won the hills, but not the amazingly productive valleys and plains, Israel had a much harder time growing crops on their rocky ground, while the Canaanites had an almost ideal location to sow and plant. Israel watched the Canaanites worship the sun god, 
the rain god, the goddess of fertility, and, and they concluded that unless they did the same, it was near hopeless that they could grow substantial crops in less suitable soil. So they played follow the leader. Fourth, although it's not typically talked about enough in our religious institutions, sex played an enormous role in primitive societies. It was key for growing the large families needed to flourish. And it was just as key for the animals to procreate freely in order for flocks and herds to grow large. Therefore, sex was seen as equally integral to worship practices. Temple prostitution, which is the scholarly name for sex acts as part of religious services, was normal and customary. In fact, it must have seemed pretty strange for Israel not to employ sacred sex. I mean, can you imagine what your worship experience would be like if suddenly it was deemed that no more music or singing would be included? Most folks would find that intolerable. They would find congregational meetings less fulfilling and exciting. It would seem as though a very important ingredient was missing. That is how ingrained and expected and taken for granted that sacred sex was among the Babylon mystery religions. Okay. This illicit mixing of Israel with the Canaanites and thus becoming intimately near to their worship customs provide too attractive for Israel. And so they adopted sacred sex as part of their integrated worship of Jehovah and Baal. Syncretism, fifth, was the result of blending the politics and economics of the Canaanites with the Israelites. The two different societies started looking almost identical because their condition before God was becoming identical. While they certainly didn't plan for this to happen, they also didn't resist it. Now the consequences of this apostasy, and remember, biblical apostasy is not the decision to entirely terminate one's relationship with God, but rather to severely compromise it, was that God responded by turning Israel over to their enemies and thus they could not stand against them as they had under the godly leadership displayed by Joshua. Now, I've taken some pretty good pot shots at my own brothers and sisters of the church today, but I've also saved a few for my dear friends, the Jewish people. Just as the body of believers is today following a parallel path to the time of the judges, so are the modern Israelis. Every effort is being made to deal away portions of Jerusalem in order to secure peace. Many Jews are now accepting that the Temple Mount, the, top, the, the site of God's sanctuary, complete with that towering Muslim golden dome, will have to become a permanent possession of the Palestinians if peace is ever going to happen. Allah is more and more being seen among Jews as but another legitimate name for God. And thus, in the desire to display tolerance and love, there's no reason that Islam cannot be accepted as a good and appropriate religion for the descendants of Ishmael, 
just as Christianity is seen as a good and appropriate religion for Gentiles. Okay. In the name of humanity, Israel constantly sends food and fuel and medical supplies and money to the terrorist regime on their borders with the hopes that their enemies will come to like them. The rest of the world sees such a thing as a sign that Israel is willing to give up their so-called racist and elitist attitude of being the chosen people of God in return for becoming a welcome member of the world community of Gentiles. Now, in Judges 2.16 comes the first explanation of the protocol of the Judges. And here is also explained this correlation between the spiritual role and the human role in the purpose of the Shoftim, Shoftim, Judges. It was that the Lord himself would raise up a judge. And the judge would be a savior who rescued some tribe or another from whoever was oppressing them. But even then, Israel would quickly return to those false gods of their neighbors after that savior judge had completed his mission. The thing to understand is that for as long as a judge whom the Lord established ruled, Israel was kept secure. And the reason that the Lord did this for Israel is one that we can all take great hope in. And it's expressed very simply in verse 18. There we're told that the Lord was moved to pity because of those who were oppressing his people. The Hebrew word that's usually translated as oppressed or afflicted is lachatz. Lachatz means to apply pressure. It means to squeeze Lachatz has a direct counterpart in the New Testament. And so we would do well to see the context of the word here in Judges and then apply it to the New Testament usage. The New Testament counterpart of the Old Testament Lachatz is in Greek, Philipsis. Philipsis. We translate it as tribulation that's right the Greek word flipsis is a translation of the Hebrew lachatz and it means to be placed under pressure it indeed is used as a euphemism in both the Hebrew and Greek to mean oppressed afflicted however the evangelical branch of the church has taught us to think of tribulation as equivalent to extreme subjugation and forced servitude along with mortal danger for all those who resist. But in fact, it can also represent a great pressure to simply do what's not right. We're all familiar with the term peer pressure. Meaning that those who we have the closest relationship with, those whose admiration and acceptance we seek, applies a kind of unbearable psychological influence upon us to conform to their ideals 
and morals. The force is more often a passive one of implied social rejection for those who are non-compliant. And less usual is it that it's influenced by some kind of aggressive coercion or a threat of physical harm. And when we read Judges, we see that unbearable pressure from both aspects is present upon Israel due to their mixing the godly with the ungodly, the clean with the unclean, and the Lord decides to take pity upon them as a result. See, the two pressure points on Israel are first, the immense social and accompanying psychological pressure to conform to what is seen as the common good. And second, there is some degree of physical coercion of the government to comply with the society's laws and customs. Now, often, though this can simply mean that living life is easier and more convenient and one can attain a higher socioeconomic strata when done in harmony with society's, the society's mores and expectations than if one chooses to buck the system, there is a third kind of pressure. And that is a tax from, another, from other nations who want to take land and crops and, or people away from Israel. Now, now that you know this, now that you've heard what I've just told you about what pressure means, the next time you read about the tribulation, flipsis, lachats, in the apocryphal books of the New Testament, don't automatically always picture the, situ- the situation as some type of grossly evil, fascist, repressive government running around enslaving people and killing the opposition at a whim, although it certainly appears it's going to reach that level at some point. But more often, from a biblical standpoint, tribulation is only addressing a national situation whereby the pressures of a society that's far from God makes life more difficult for those living within that society but who also seek to live in harmony with God. It just gets harder. In the case of Israel dealing with their Canaanite neighbors, it points to a situation whereby those temptations that were placed in front of Israel to succumb to a pagan lifestyle are huge. The draw to personal pleasure and comfort and sexual deviance were nearly irresistible. The principle that economic advancement overrules everything else became the focus. Sound familiar? And verse 20 continues to make the point that the Lord is very angry with Israel. Thus, there's no chance that Israel's going to escape punishment. But hidden in the words of the second half of this verse is a kind of slap in the face, if you would, to Israel by the Lord. Look where it says that because this nation violates my covenant, which I ordered their fathers to obey. See that verse. Take a look at it. In Hebrew, it says, because... Hagoy Haseh, Hagoy Haseh violates my covenant. 
Goy, ha goy. Goy means Gentile nation. Way back in Genesis, before the time of Abraham, Goy, or Goyim, which is just the plural, meant nations as like any old nation on earth. But when Abraham was declared by God as the first Hebrew, thus the earth became divided into Gentiles and Hebrews. The term goy then became applied only to Gentile people, not to Hebrews. So here we have in this verse the Lord essentially saying, because this Gentile-like nation violates my covenant. The bottom line here is that if to some serious level a follower of God behaves as a non-follower, then the God of Israel will see you just as though you were a non-follower and not as one of his. I can't define that exact point. I defy anybody else to define it. Such a matter is in the Lord's province alone. But there is every reason to stay as far from any possibility of the Father lumping us in with the pagans of the world due to our unacceptable behaviors and attitudes isn't there. I don't want to get anywhere near that line. Because I don't know where it is. So in verse 22, God says that he is going to leave those Canaanite nations there in the land for the tribes of Israel to contend with as a test. Or better, a trial. This does not mean trial in the sense of trials and tribulations. It doesn't indicate being put into a bad situation whereby the bad situation is of itself the punishment. Rather, in Hebrew, the word is nasah. And it refers to a judicial kind of trial. In other words, the accurate sense of the statement is that God is going to put the tribes of Israel on trial in his courtroom. They are the accused. He is the judge. Whether they're convicted and merit further punishment or whether they are found to be innocent and merit mercy is going to depend on if Israel proves itself to have learned its lesson and become Torah observant as their immediate ancestors were. The alternative is that Israel will reject God's discipline in the form of the Canaanite nations being divinely allowed to create problems for Israelite society. And God reacts with further and predictably more severe punishments of his people. We'll start chapter 3 next time.